and welcome into another edition of the Doug Russell Podcast. Glad to have you along for the ride. Of course, anytime you want to hit us up on our socials, please feel free to do so. I am at Doug Russell on Twitter. Doug Russell Pod, the show is at Doug Russell Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, got a good show for you coming up on today's episode. A uh, good friend of mine, Tim Brando. Uh, you may know him from CBS. You may know him as one of the uh, early voices and faces on ESPN. He's been on Fox Sports and FS1 for the last several years. Calls a lot of Wisconsin football games, Wisconsin basketball games, a fair amount of Marquette basketball games as well. He's been around the block a hundred times, and uh, I've known him for about 20 years, ever since we worked together at Sporting News Radio. And it was just great to have a chance to catch up with Timmy B and uh, had a chance to talk to him on my new show, The Game Night, on 97.3 The Game. Good to be with you as always, pal. Absolutely. Good to have you on the show. So you're you're a Southerner, but you, you sure do spend a fair amount of time here in the upper, uh, upper Midwest. You're part of FS1's coverage of the Big Ten and the Big East. We see it at Marquette games as well as Badgers games. Do you consider yep. yourself yet, yet an honorary Midwesterner? Well, I think uh, most of us that are from the – I've always sort of felt that as a – yeah, I'm a Southerner. There's no getting around that. Uh, born and raised and live here by choice, live in my hometown. But I've always traveled a lot, Doug. I mean, going back to my childhood with my dad who had a band that toured SAC air bases all across the country and internationally as well, we traveled a lot, you know, and not always by plane. You know, many times we, we would get in the Hub Brando and the Dreamers uh, uh, vans. We had a couple of vans that carried the, the the band with us, and we would go do shows and all over the country when I was a kid. So, uh, I, you know, Midwesterners, a lot like Southerners, uh, don't mind traveling great distances. You know, the idea of uh, a six- or seven-hour drive uh, to someone in the in the northeast or out on the west coast is like, what are you out of your mind? We don't do that uh, here. But, but 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 if you're in, you know, if you're in Indiana, uh, Illinois, uh, it's a lot of farm country there, uh, and it, certainly you've got it in uh, in Wisconsin too. I mean, people are just down to earth, regular folks, and uh, and they tend to travel uh, uh, that way and and carry themselves in such a manner. So. I've always been comfortable uh, coming to places like Camp Randall or, um, uh, gosh, I just love going to Iowa City. You know, I really do. I think that's just a marvelous uh, setting. And, uh, you know, for years, especially the years that that you met me when I was working at CBS, most of the games, if not all of the games, at football season that I was covering were in the Southeastern Conference. And, I, you know, I've known that league like the – back of my hand for a lifetime but you know i always wanted to be identified as a college football announcer not not just an sec football announcer or basketball announcer and um i think my journey taking me into fox at a time when they were building their college football portfolio you know when i got there in 14 they didn't have the big 10 yet you know they had the pac-12 and the big 12 and that was about it. And now uh, the portfolio is much larger. And I think that the um, prospects for it growing even further in the next five years between now and the next uh, TV contract and the college football playoff expansion, I think are quite good. And 
and going into places like, for instance, um, I had never been to Camp Randall until a couple of years ago. And I've gone there now, I think, like three times. I've done the Heartland Trophy game the last two years running and uh, loved it. And those are always fun games to do. Um, I had never been to Outson Stadium in Eugene. And that's an unbelievable place to do a college football game. And this year, uh, Spencer and I are going to start our 23rd year together, going back to our days at CBS in the studio. Um, he only missed my first year at Fox. He was in, uh, I left him at CBS for one year and then he joined me, uh, again. And this year we open, uh, with, uh, Texas at home against Louisiana, against the Raging Cajuns. It's going to be a hell of a game. Uh, Sark could lose that game, by the way, a uh, very good chance he could lose that game because the Raging Cajuns returned just about everyone from a 10 and one team. But we start in Austin the second week we go to the Coliseum to do a game on Fox after the Mets play the Yankees on the anniversary of 911, the 20th anniversary, then we come on the air at 10:30 Eastern, 9:30 Central with USC and Stanford at the Coliseum. The only game I've ever done at at, um, at the Coliseum, Doug, is uh, a USFL game when Steve Young was quarterbacking in 1985, <laughs> the LA Express, coached by John Hadle against Mouse Davis's Denver Gold. I mean, so I will, I've never experienced, uh, you know, a night game uh, in the Coliseum. And then the week after that, I'll go to the old horseshoe of the banks of the Olentangy, and I've not done a game at Ohio State in my life. Now, even through the Big Ten contract, uh, I've, I've never had Ohio State at home. So, you know, I'm giddy. I'm like a kid in a candy store going to new places, and I'm 65 years old. These are places that I think most people would be surprised to learn that I've never been. So, and hadn't been until recently. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a flyover states guy much more than I think I am a southern guy when it comes to my comfort zone in sports. I've always, I think, identified more with the fan bases uh, in the Midwest and, and in the South, without question, because that's the heartland, really, of college football. College football's strength is in the Rust Belt, in the Sun Belt portion of the country. Fox Sports' Tim Brando joining us here on the game night. You mentioned Texas and Oklahoma. What, what's, what were your original thoughts uh, about them jumping from the Big 12 to the SEC? I, I wasn't shocked. I think the timing uh, probably surprised the hell out of a lot of people, particularly uh, the commissioners of the other conferences. But but um, I'm not surprised. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you, the major reason I'm not is because of everything that was happening uh, that was on the periphery uh, in college football in the offseason. We had uh, the announcement of the expansion to 12. We had NIL. We had a lawsuit that the NCAA was hopeful and prayerful uh, the Supreme Court would, would, would rule in their favor, and they got shut out nine to nothing. You know, it's like, hello, this just in. NIL is going to happen, and, and the Supreme Court said that it's going to happen. When that ruling came down, I think it, it sent a message to everyone in, in college football, all of the movers and shakers, if you're running a league, you better do everything you can to bring as much money in as you possibly can, because not only are you going to have to come out of COVID, which was a year in which everyone hemorrhaged money, but you're going to have to take care of, eventually you're going to have to take care of these players in ways 
that you never dreamt you would. And, and so, you know, the phone rings and, uh, the SEC commissioner picks up and, and there you have, uh, two presidents of two institutions that bring the biggest brands in college football outside of Notre Dame. Well, you have to take that call and you have to move on that. Um, and I think that, um, a lot of the criticism that's come Greg Sankey's way about, um, the potential of having had the knowledge when they were agreeing on the expansion, they were, uh, he was part of that committee, that four person committee, along with Bob Bowlesby and had not said anything about it. And well, you know, all, all is fair in love, war and politics and sports. I mean, he had a little something in his hip pocket. I'm not going to blame him for that. I'm just going to say that he was acting in the best interest of his constituents and he knew that he needed to get more money and more revenue in there, and he's done that. So it's now up to the rest of the lot, the Big Ten, the ACC, uh, and the Pac-12 to, to do whatever it is they're going to do. And certainly Bob Bowlesby now has to um, do some patchwork and, and try to hold his eight together and find a way to cobble together maybe a few more teams to make for a nice television arrangement for them. The, the big key, I think, though, is going to be what the Big Ten does in their next TV contract, because theirs is up a year a year before everybody else's. So in 2000, after the 21-22 seasons, uh, the Big Ten will have to make a new deal. I think by the time all that shakes out, Doug, uh, we're going to be looking at that point of um, you know a, a completely different landscape and um, a, a, a future perhaps where college football will will be more than just a one network entity that um uh, that someone besides ESPN is going to be involved in college football's postseason who that is i have no idea i, I can tell you i know who i want it to be <laughs> <laughs> but 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 i have no idea that's well above my pay grade but i but i think that uh, the outlook for college football is really bright uh, much uh, you know these doomsayers out there that are saying, oh, it's just not going to be the same. And a lot of them are my age, you know, you know, the, ah, these guys getting money, you know, they, they listen, um, if the quarterback gets more for an endorsement deal than the left tackle, guess what? That's life. You know, you're going to find that out when you go into the pros. Uh, so you might as well learn now. Okay. But if you can get something, something in return for your name, image, and likeness in college, I think that's as it should be. You know, we knew this was going to happen. No one should be surprised. Well, as long as we're talking about NIL in the immediate future, mm-hmm. in 2021, 2022, and the next couple of years, how does that affect a school, for example, like the Wisconsin Badgers? They haven't been competing for Big Ten. I mean, they've been competing for Big Ten championships, but it's been Ohio State that has been emerging from the conference. And then you talked about the SEC before. How does it affect a team like Wisconsin? How can they take advantage of the new NIL to help bolster their club? Well, I, you know, listen, you've been to Madison. Uh, you spent a lot of time there. You know how engulfed in the community the Badgers are. And that's a that's a big, big campus with, gosh, you'd have to update me. Last I recall, it was upwards of between forty to 50,000 yeah. enrolled. Oh, that, that's still uh, accurate. Generally speaking, uh, a huge, a huge alumni base <clears throat> with, with, with a, a lot of, uh, pomp and circumstance too. A lot of guys that I have worked with, my my friend Steve Bornstein, who 
gave me the original college game day job as a Wisconsin grad. And, you know, he went on to run not only ESPN as president, but went on to the NFL to direct things there for some time. Now he's in private business uh, out in um, out in California. But there are a lot of influential people uh, that have done very, very well for themselves from that from that school. I, I think that uh, it's going to help within that community the, the, the youngsters that are playing in non-revenue producing sports in a very large way. Uh, you know, football is one thing, but there are uh, young ladies that are playing in athletics now that have done very well at Wisconsin that could cash in. You know, the, the loyalty factor with a fan base that loves women athletics is is really higher than that of the men. If you go on a campus where whether it's women's softball or it's women's um, uh, basketball or volleyball, a place like Nebraska, by example, you know how great they've been historically in um, in volleyball. It, it It's going to help all these youngsters, um, you know, just within the community um, with deals that are not huge deals. They're not all going to be Bryce Young stories at Alabama. You know, they're not going to be this seven-figure deal, but it's going to be the kind of deals that, uh, allow for uh, these young people to learn more about life, how to manage money, and and how to have a really a, a better uh, collegiate experience. Uh, I think the way Wisconsin handles it and the way other schools have handled it is by hiring companies, private companies, to come in and help them with it. Uh, that was going on, gosh, uh, within the last 18 months leading up to uh, the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, different private companies were procured by the individual schools to help them manage and, if you will, regulate what was going on so they can at least follow what's happening. Now, it does vary from state to state, and that's going to be the case, which makes it a little bit of a wild, wild west story until something is done at the national level to regulate it. And, you know, the NCAA was kicking this can down the street as though they would be able to get Congress involved. And my God, anytime you're going to be leaning on Congress to get something done, <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, I mean, what's more screwed up than the NCAA? Try try Congress. That's what's more screwed up than the NCAA. I don't think so, anybody's going to argue uh, with you on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just no getting around it. The, the private sector and these individual, and then let's face it, that's what we're talking about here. College athletes, I'm tired of student-athletes, okay? They're players, and they've been players for a long time. Some are student-athletes, yes, but not all. Some are not student-athletes. Some are, some aren't. But these student-athletes now, if you want to call them that, they have now become, and you just have to call it that, independent contractors. That's what they are. No different than someone who's working in local radio or television, Doug, and gets a job as a freelancer with um, the Big Ten Network or a freelancer with uh, uh, ESPN or a freelancer with Fox, okay? These young athletes are now in a position of becoming independent contractors for those that are using their name, image, and likeness. And they are participating with the brand of the school. And the school is still getting a, a great deal out of these young young people, male, female, revenue producing or non-revenue producing. They're getting a lot out of them. So 
for the athletes to get some return on uh, their name, image, and likeness, I think is a wonderful thing. I, I embrace it. I think it is something that people should look at uh, with a great deal of optimism as opposed to pessimism. Tim Brando from Fox Sports joining us here on the game night. Um, let's talk about the college football playoff for a second. They take the top four teams, as everyone knows. And I know that this has been a passion of yours literally for as long as I've known you, and that's been a couple of decades. Um, in your opinion, how should college football arrive at its national championship game? Well, we're, we're going in that direction now, finally. Uh, uh, it was the, the move to 12. Uh, did surprise me. I had um, uh, for years had been telling people that eight was great and that it didn't need to exceed that because uh, anything beyond that might be a push for presidents. Well, presidents changed their, their, their minds on this for one reason and one reason only money. <laughs> when they saw and, and to the strength of the commissioners of college football, I, I give a lot of credit to the new leadership. Uh, in college football, uh, and and I really do think the world of uh, the late Mike Slive from the SEC, of course, and and Jim Delaney, who recently retired uh, from the Big Ten. But you see how involved he still is. You know, he's dabbling in that thing all. You know, right now he's acting as a consultant for everybody right now. Okay, <laughs> to counter the SEC's move, Delaney's got his hands in everything now. Uh, which I think is a good thing because Jim's really smart, uh, very bright, and I think uh, has always had the best interests of, of college athletics uh, at hand. But by going to 12 rather than 8, what this does is it gives the, the, the schools an opportunity of much more income from what? All right, inventory. What does inventory create? It creates revenue, much larger revenue. Okay, I think that um, you're talking about a deal for television with the new contract for the college football playoff when that deal is done, whether they tear up the contract and start again in, in two or three years, or if they wait until this contract ends in 24 and they, they have a bidding war uh, in 20 for, for the rights to start in 25, we're talking about going from some, something like 665, 67 million dollars annually, okay, to the bidder to two billion dollars with a B. All right, we're talking about uh, eight ad additional games, we're talking about 11 games, we're talking about something that could be, as I said earlier, shared uh, by two networks. One of the real uh, tricks of the National Football League success uh, in, in sports television was having uh, multiple network deals. You know, they are literally in business with every network. The network I worked for, Fox, was created by the NFL rights that they won from CBS in 1994. Uh, any network that's been without the NFL for any period of time found out early and often that they needed to be back in business with the NFL. Well, college football has been really owned by one network for really since, uh, gosh, since the BCS uh, left Fox and went back to ESPN. It has been all ESPN all the time in the postseason. And it's wonderful to have that kind of control. But when that control is now being disrupted or disturbed, 
by those that believe that maybe uh, uh, too much knowledge is in one place, then I think the uh, the boundaries could really be better and bigger if you opened it up. In a lot of ways, uh, everybody in the television business, it's a small business, very small business. And Fox and ESPN may be, you know, real strong competitors, but we also have to work together. You know, the Big Ten is primarily on Fox, but ESPN picks second, and they've got a lot of games. Big 12, same story. Pac-12, same story. We have to draft. We have a lottery of, of games that are drafted by our programmers. So they're on the phones and working with each other all summer long trying to come up with a, a schedule process. Well, you could do the same thing with the totality of college football, including its postseason. And, uh, and I think it would give much greater exposure to the sport were that to happen. Um, now, whether that happens or it doesn't happen, I have, as I said before, I have no idea. But I do know this. If it costs more money, and it's going to cost a lot more money, then all the money that's being spent on rights fees now that are so exorbitant, whether it's the NHL, the NFL, uh, the NBA, you name it, uh, at some point, um, the sharing of those rights and the sharing of something like college football could be, I think, really good for the sport and really good for the networks in terms of trying to save some some cash because everybody lost money last year. Yeah. COVID, COVID was awful for the schools. Uh, they hemorrhaged revenue. The, the, the networks did too. And um, coming out of that now, I think um, it would be a really wise choice to, to, to suggest that maybe more than just one network should control the way college football operates itself in the postseason. As for the 12 teams uh, that get in, I think this is going to finally give all of America, when the process begins, when the postseason starts, Doug, this will enable the Pac-12 for the first time in a long while to be involved, that schools west of the Mississippi might be a part of this thing. It may be the same four or five teams that win every year, I mean, right now there's such separation with Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, Georgia, maybe an LSU, maybe five or six teams that you can sense are always going to be there every year. There is separation there, okay? It's not about who wins the title. It's about the process and getting to the title that's the issue because we've turned the sport into basically a region of the country. You talked about the Rust Belt earlier, okay? It's right down the middle, and as much as I love that part of the country, we need all those households on the East Coast and all those households on the West Coast to be engaged in college football, and they haven't been for the last, you know, decade or more. So um, this this is going to help that by having an elimination process, a real playoff with every section of the country represented is in the best interest of growing the game. Last couple of seconds with Tim Brando. I know you rattled off a bunch of uh, games that you've already been assigned. Do you have your full schedule yet? Are you going to come to see us at uh, Camp Randall at all this year? Well, you know, I, I believe that I will uh, because because I know Wisconsin's going to be a factor. Uh, but but we only have the first three weeks set. Uh, and then after that, we pick on a 12-day basis based on, you know, the the drafting process and lottery process that's done. Uh, between uh, Fox and and, uh, ESPN when it comes to the Big Ten. 
look, I would I would be shocked if I didn't get uh, a Wisconsin game or two or three. I mean, I've, I think I had back to back seasons where I had them twice before we had COVID. Uh, last year, I did get them in the game at Iowa uh, at the end of the year when everybody was hurt uh, for Wisconsin. So, yeah, I, I think that you'll see me, but uh, I probably won't know until about 12 days out. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I will look for the tweet then uh, from you. Yeah, when, yeah. Uh, you'll be the you'll be the first to know via Twitter. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Tim, this was great. I love catching up with you. I can talk college sports with you all day long. Uh, unfortunately, we do have a clock that we've got to so- sort of kind of keep to, but uh, I-, I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, as the host of your nighttime show, ladies and gentlemen, here's a uh, precursor of the next segment. We're going to be a real quick segment because we <laughs> ran along with Brandon. <laughs> Say that like it's happened before once or twice, Tim. <laughs> you take care, buddy. All right, you too, pal. We'll talk to you soon. All right. All right, there he goes. Tim Brando from Fox Sports who uh, joined me on the game night, which is uh, on starting at 6 o'clock Monday through Friday on 97.3 The Game. Also had a chance to catch up with former Major Leaguer Paul Wagner. And Wags and I had a good conversation uh, last night about, among other things, the fact that there, there were some tweaks maybe to the game of baseball that he and I had spoken about, including maybe not having the human element behind the plate, which is something that on Wednesday night... Man, there was a lot of human, we'll put it this way, there was a lot of human element behind the plate on Wednesday night in the Brewers-Cardinals game, and it wasn't pretty. Just to revisit our conversation for a second from last night, still think we don't need robo-umps? Yeah, I thought about it last night. I, I thought about it. I think that umpire behind the dish last night was absolutely horrendous, as... Omar Narvaez did, Yadier Molina's laughs, Escobar, I think Craig Council, I think everybody agreed. So it was funny as I was watching it, and I remembered our question from yesterday. Yes, you may be right on the <laughs> robo-umps. <laughs> How do they get so egregiously bad? Now, I understand that sometimes you're going to have bang-bang plays, and umpires are human beings, and sometimes they get things wrong, but last night... It was atrocious, and it's not like they just pick these guys, contrary to popular belief, off the street. I mean, they have to go through right. umpire school and then the minor leagues, and then they get to the majors, and it's like, how did you get this far? And they weren't borderline pitches. It wasn't like a pitch on the black where you go either way. These Some of these pitches were four, five, six inches outside. I mean, when you have an all-star Hall of Fame catcher in Yadier Molina, who's seen a million pitches in his career... He can basically tell you if it's a ball or strike. Probably call it himself, like the old pickup basketball games. Foul on you, okay? Sure. And he's laughing in the batter's box because it's so ridiculous. I I don't understand it. And supposedly the umpires and Major League Baseball and the association are supposed to have an evaluation period. Well, obviously this evaluation period isn't working because these guys are terrible at times. Yeah, and when we asked about uh, Angel Hernandez. On last night's show, Angel Hernandez has had a long career in the major leagues. Joe West is retiring this season. He's umpired more games than anybody else in major league history. Started, I think, in 1976. And he's been horrible since 1976. He was horrible when you played. How these guys, when they're awful, continue to do the job is beyond me. Because when I go to a minor league game, I don't know about you, when I go to a minor league game and see these umpires that are working to get in position and, you know, 
they don't have the experience that the major league guys have, but I tell you what, I see a lot more hustle in the minor leagues with the umpires than I do in the majors. Yeah, perfect example last night. We saw this. Lance Lynch, Chicago White Sox. Obviously, they're still checking for spider mm-hmm. tack after each inning. You come out there. When you're done pitching in your inning, you want to communicate with your pitching coach. You want to communicate with your catcher. You want to know what you did good, what you did bad. Hey, what we're going to work on on the sixth inning coming up? Lance Lynn got ejected after the fifth inning. So after that fifth inning, that's the second time through your rotation or through that batting order. They've got to make an adjustment. So you know what? Time is of the essence. If you roll a double play ball and you're back out on the mound, you haven't been able to communicate. So Lance Lynn gives the, the his glove and his hat. And that umpire, you said timing. Mm-hmm. He's dragging his butt behind, waiting. And then all of a sudden he comes running up and says to Lance Lynn, hey, I need your belt too. Lance Lynn doesn't say anything but takes off his belt and throws it up at him, and he ejects him for that. Yeah. You know what? You're right. Why are you lazy? What? Get there. If this is what we got to do, we got to do it. Minor league umpires, they're running around trying to impress. I guess once you get to the big league job, you can, you can kind of – Play at your own pace. Yeah, that um, that was unfortunate, and it's been unfortunate to see for the last several years, not just last night. But let's talk about last night's game for just a second. The Brewers go down three to nothing. I went away from the game for a little while after Freddie went down with the you know when he was swinging the bat when he struck out in the third inning. You think the worst, and I've always said my mantra has been as long as everybody stays healthy, especially in the rotation, I love the way that this rotation can and this pitching staff can set up for October. Just get to October and anything can happen. I was a little mm, heart in the, uh, a little lump in the throat a little bit when uh, Freddie went down with that twinge. Fortunately, just a little inflammation, he's going to be okay. But um, last night's game was a roller coaster in a lot of different ways. And you bring up a good point because you, as we looked at after the 2020 season and the shortened season, the universal DH was kicked around. I, I have a belief that Major League Baseball is going to get with the Players Union and universal DH is going to be something. Fortunately, Freddie's okay, but here's a situation where he gets hurt. Jimmy Nelson is so well documented yeah. in the past. Yep. You know what? Just the universal DH also brings guys back. My saying number eight would look great as a DH if the Brewers could have another roster spot with 26. Well, 26 now with COVID, but maybe 27. Maybe you have a, a guy at the end of his career. Number eight can play another year in Milwaukee, still sell jerseys in the stands, wave hand, you know, wave hands and shake babies. You know, no. <laughs> you know what? So I, I think that universal DH has to be implemented. I hope those two sides can come together because I think it's big. And at least to keep pitchers out of danger. And we know what it looks like in Milwaukee when the Brewers were in the American League. I mean, that's how Hank Aaron spent the last two years of his career as the Brewers' designated hitter in the mid-1970s. Paul Molitor, for years, was a designated hitter. I like watching you guys flail up there there, there a little bit because there's some strategy to it. Did you like hitting when you were uh, pitching for, for the Pirates? No. Guy was throwing 88 miles an hour. I was scared to death. Well, some guys like it. I mean, no. like, like Woody, I mean, he could rake. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't mind it. I was very fortunate that I, I was kind confident in my abilities to lay down a bunt. Mm-hmm. You know, I could do that, stuff like that. But as far as, you know what, you, you swing the bat the wrong way, it, it shoots a zinger up your arm. There's so many things that can go wrong. And yeah, you know, I guess I never really thought about did I enjoy it or did I not? I just went with it because that was the way it happened. Obviously, I always wanted to hit a home run, and when I got the bunt signal, I rolled my eyes and was, son of a gosh, let me try to hit. But, uh, you know, um, yeah, it, it's something where guys can get hurt. We played on a lot of AstroTurf, yeah. a lot of those, you know, cookie-cutter stadiums. Oh, that was your home ballpark exactly for a long time. Exactly right. 
Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, everywhere. St. Louis, even before mm-hmm. the, the first Bush Stadium, I played in the first and the second. You know, they had that turf and stuff like that. So there was a lot of spikes on the turf, wet coming over. There's a lot of opportunities for injury, but it wasn't didn't really happen that much. And when when you did hit and you did how many hits did you get in your career? Do you remember? I can look it up. I'm gonna say third um yeah, 30, 39. Okay, so 39 30, maybe? 39 30, hits? 39 hits. I will look that up. We're going to fact check that for the Hello, last Oh, brother. Segment. But still, 30, hey, look, 39 more major league hits than I ever got. <laughs> uh, when you got to first base, as a pitcher, what did your teammates do? Did they did they rib you at all? Because, ah, there's the pitcher, you know, pitchers that, that can rake. How did they react to it? And did you almost feel like it was an accident sometimes when you got a hit? <laughs> when I got a hit, I felt like it was an accident. But we always have, you know, you have a kangaroo court type of thing. Sure. So pitchers would take, with us, we'd always take BP. So we'd have games and batting practice, try to hit home runs. And, you know, you do your hit and run, lay down your bunts for a little bit, and then you try to just go yard. Mm-hmm. You want to jump ship. So anytime you got a hit, you'd throw five bucks. So if a single is five bucks, and what we did is we just had we just had like a I don't know how we even did it, but you actually paid for your hit. So if I'd get a single, five bucks in the pot. I hit I hit two doubles. I know this for a fact. So I had to pay <laughs> ten bucks, and I and I'm so happy because I think I got both my doubles off Hall of Famers, and one being Tom Glavin. So, nice. Yeah. So, but we always put it in there, and then we'd play games and stuff. And there was sort of a kangaroo court. Strikeouts were you know we you know obviously frowned upon, but we didn't. Uh, we we always enjoyed you know successes. So successes actually cost you money. Well, that's okay though. I mean, yeah. that's because that's that's fun. Uh, Paul Wagner, of course, joining us here on the game night. The Brewers they wrap up their uh, road trip. They've been the best road team in baseball all year long. Eight and one on this swing right now. Now, granted, they haven't played the best teams in baseball with the Cubs and the Pirates, and now obviously with the Cardinals. But the Cardinals have been playing better ball going into this series. But you look at that road record this season, the best in baseball. What do you make of that? It just adds so much to this team and so much to what we can expect. I've said before at Game 142, I believe this team is going to be set. This is a World Series team. And we can, it's easy to be in first place and to be 26 plus games above 500 and and nine and a half or eight and a half games up in, in the division. And you always seem to look at the the negative part. You know, are we scoring runs? Is number twenty two going to pick it up a little bit? Is he starting to see the ball better? Are we going to stay away from injury? It, it's just yeah, we always wanted more. We do want more. We wanted more offense since April, since May, when we weren't in June twenty third, when we were a game under five hundred, I believe we were, and not in first place. You know, but this team playing on the road and succeeding, and then also at home. When you come back to home, it's easy. It's easier to make your adjustments at home than it is on the road. If you got road woes, they always say, if you can't win on the road, then you're going to struggle in postseason. If you're struggling right now at home for one reason or another, it's easier to absorb that and come back and rectify that problem. Teams always pick up the pace at home rather than on the road. So. I look at the Colorado Rockies. I think they might even have the best home record, mm-hmm. but I don't. I bet you they've won two games on the road. Right. You know, so it's like it's crazy. So when I look at a road winning record like the Milwaukee Brewers have, you have to be optimistic in that because postseason play comes. You're going to go to an opposing field. You're going to face raucous fans. They're going to be yelling and screaming. But if you can adapt to that life on the road and actually win. That's nice. And don't slouch on the St. Louis Cardinals. We face Wainwright, who's having a hell of a year. Yeah. We talked about that yesterday. He's almost 40, too. And Flaherty. I mean, th- these are two good guys. Yeah, Flaherty's. that was only his second start since coming off the IL. 
But still, those are two stud starters that you you just beat. Well, like I said earlier in the week, still 2011 PTSD. I mean, from the Cardinals. They were out of it on September 1st, and then they became the hottest team in baseball and wound up with a trophy at the end, So, including beating the Brewers in the National League Championship Series. Uh, Final thing, uh, you mentioned getting 22 up and going. You also talked about bunting before. How about that bunt that he laid down? Last night, uh, as he said to Sophia Minute after the game, yeah, probably hit it a little bit too hard, but because of the way that the shift was on the infield, it worked out, and his speed beat out the uh, the throw, and that's how the Brewers got an uh, an extra run. And especially with Christian, we're trying to find something. He's trying to find something that can spark him. You can say all you want, but some little thing for him may be different than another person, and if that can do it, and then even even maybe like maybe I don't know, frosting on the cake was they they challenge it. Oh and yeah, he's still right. safe. Yep. So you know what? Now he's really got a good little chuckle. You know what? He had two hits the night before. Hopefully things roll. If Christian Yelich, if number twenty-two finds it, and I've been saying it, and I keep repeating it, one forty-two. If twenty-two figures it out, this Milwaukee Brewer team, by no no means doubt, I, I'll take on anybody on the West. I'll take on San Diego, San Francisco, L.A. The East doesn't scare me. New York, Atlanta, Philly, they don't scare me at all. I think this Milwaukee Brewer team definitely goes to the World Series. And it's nice to see you in person, by the way, here in the studio. Uh, I haven't done this enough, but give us a plug for your Saturday morning show uh, with Ritter from our morning show over on 106.1. Yeah, so we've been doing a podcast. It's called Tailgate Talk. Really, it's been kind of shooting off pretty good. Uh, All outdoors, hunting, it's it's kind of just a mix of guys who don't, or a mash of vocals who really don't know what the hell we're talking about, but it's good because the talk and text line, people have shot in text messages and questioning whether deer hunting season, fishing season, snowmobiling, hiking trails, we talk to the DNR, we have special guests that come on and talk to us about guide services, the walking trails, um, how they're maintaining the Ice Age trails, um, non-motorized sports now, the kayaks and the canoes. It's just a huge, huge ball of information where we just sit around and talk to get get people back outdoors because 2020 sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it did. Well, 2021 isn't... You know, trending in the right direction <laughs> right now either. But I did want to get that in because I'm going on a hiking trip uh, over the next couple of days, so I won't see you until next week or won't be able to talk to you until next week. And you did a trip last year as well, too. So this will be two years in a row? Or a couple we... of them. Uh, last year we did a trip to South Dakota and yes. Wyoming and did a hike out there. Now we're going a little bit further north. Uh, we're going up to North Dakota and doing a hike up there uh, in Teddy Roosevelt National Park. And then earlier this year we did a couple of, uh, when you think about Arizona, I think a lot of sports fans, maybe the ones listening to this show, you think about, oh, you're going out to spring training. No, we went up to northern Arizona and did a couple of hikes, did some Sedona hikes, did some uh, north rim of the Grand Canyon hikes, uh, southern Utah as well, and Grand Escalante Staircase National Monument up there, uh, Toadstool Hoodoos, uh, which was a nice little hike as well. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're, we're trying to get out and, and see this country. Yeah, and, and what an what an opportunity. You know, it's something that we, we did it. Maybe this little kick in the butt made us realize what yeah. we had and what we didn't. So, 100%. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, so it's a really good thing. We we actually just did our 28th show. So uh, we've been doing this for a while. So if you haven't listened to it, obviously 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning, Saturday mornings, and it's good. It's me and Ritter, Ritter from the Country Station, 106.1. And uh, two opposite ends. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an ATV snowmobiler, uh, shooting guns, and, and he's more of the kayak hiking guy. He's the 
he's a, if we can say it in different words, he's a, he's the granola cruncher, and I'm the <laughs> and I'm the meat eater. Right. <laughs> I like that. It's a good way of putting it. It's a good show. Uh, I get to listen to it before Garbidi and on golf right here on ninety seven three. The game before uh, each show again on Saturday morning at seven o'clock. Good to see you, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Have a good one, Dougie. Former big leaguer Paul Wagner, who joined me on the game night as well. That'll do it for this edition of the Doug Russell Podcast. Again, join me on the radio every night, Monday through Friday, starting at 6 o'clock on 97.3 The Game. And we'll also post some highlights and have some original content for you right here on the Doug Russell Podcast as well. And really looking forward to bringing you some of the things that I've had to shelve once or twice and got a really special one coming up in a couple of weeks as well that you'll want to stick around for, too. So glad to have you along. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the new show on the radio as well. And we'll talk to you next time right here on the Doug Russell Podcast.